Hey, let's give all our moms a round of applause. Say thank you. Thank God for uh, the, the role and the place that moms play in our hearts. Hey, welcome all of our campuses, all five of our locations. Thank you for being here. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team. My privilege and honor to get to share from God's Word with you. Before we get into that, just some exciting things going on in, in this season that we're in here at Rockbridge Community Church. One is baptism and that we have a big baptism celebration at all of our locations, all of our campuses. Your bulletin or the website has more details, more information about that. And so, you know, we're praying for 400 people to get baptized this year at Rockbridge Community Community Church because of your invitations, Rock Bridgers, and because of you sharing what Jesus has done, what Jesus means for you. So you can sign up for that, but love for everybody. However your campus is celebrating baptism, love for you to celebrate that uh, with us. And, and then a few months ago, we were in a message series called The Prayer Project, and we mobilized our church to pray, and we really want to be a church that prays more intentionally and more consistently. So we have an online Facebook prayer group or a prayer experience that's going to happen that happens every Wednesday. At, uh, at 7 a.m., you can just log on. It'll be kind of on Facebook Live. I thought we had a slide for that, but we don't. So at 7 a.m. every Wednesday, there's a weekly prayer experience and love for you uh, to join us for that. We okay? <clears throat> okay I thought it was an emergency. Okay. <clears throat> so... Here we go. So this is, a, we've been in a series uh, called Habits, Vices, and Sins, Oh My. And so we've been going through sins that the church, since about the 400s AD, have classified seven sins as what they kind of call deadly sins that lead to a bunch of other sins in our, in our lives. And so here's kind of the deal. I was struggling because I was like, it's Mother's Day weekend, and what sin am I going to talk about? Because that would be awkward, right, to make mom squirm on your day and use it's a high attendance day because moms want uh, their whole family to go to church. It's just kind of a, a cool thing that happens. So here's the deal. The sin that we're going to talk about today, you do not think of your mom when you think of this sin. In, in fact, she's the opposite of this sin. So we're going to introduce it in a few minutes. So moms, you kind of get a pass today. You can watch everybody around you squirm. If your husband's guilty, you can actually elbow them. No, just kidding. Uh, at least don't let me see it. Uh, so we're going to talk about this sin. Now to get into this sin, I, I want to introduce it biblically first for you from the, from the book of Romans, which Paul writes. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn it on, open it up, or you can follow along with me. We'll be in Romans chapter 13, so that's the New Testament, almost halfway through the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, and we're going to get into this deadly sin that is hard to detect, hard to detect, but it's devastating when it's present, but you may not even know that it is there. Here we go, Romans chapter 13. Paul here is just concerned with love, and, and when we talk about love, that's kind of a weird thing because we've kind of neutered what it means. You know, everybody says, hey, what the world needs now is love, and love wins, and love over hate, but nobody can agree on what love really means. So the Bible gives us some great handlebars for that. So Paul says, the one who loves one another, or loves another, has fulfilled the law. So if we get love right, all the other stuff just sort of will fall into place and take care of it. And he explains that. The commandments, and he starts mentioning kind of some of the big ten, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covenant, or, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment 
of the law. So his whole concern about what he's about to talk about or how he's concluding this thought is that we get love right. And then in the translation we use, which is the Christian Standard Bible, it's probably not the best translation of this little phrase, which you're reading or I'm reading is besides this. The actual better translation is do this. So because of what love is, do this is kind of the connection there. So don't miss that. Since you know the time. Now, the Greek word for time here that he's using is kairos. So there's chronos time, which is like if you look at your watch right now, boom, that's chronos time. There's kairos time, which is kind of the season, the appointed time that, that you're in. So there's a difference between, hey, it's time for us to, for you kids to go to school and, and saying, hey, now is the time for you to get your education. There's a difference between saying, hey, it's time to start at 8 a.m. versus this is the season for something. So this is the season is what Paul is saying. It is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. And he's not talking about chronos sleep, like the six to eight hours your, your body kind of needs biologically to function. He's saying that being asleep is not recognizing the season that you're in. It'd be like if you bumped into a 10-year-old and you said, hey, are you in school? And they said, no. Or you bumped up into a 30-year-old and said, hey, are, are, what's your career? Do you have a job? Are you working? And they said, no, I'm, I'm playing Xbox all day. You, you're, like, you're asleep in the season of life that you're in. Now, here's the logic that Paul is using to, to explain what, where we're going. Love and time are connected. Love and time are connected. So let me say it to you this way so you understand me. You can say to your family, you can say to another human being, I love you. And people can hear your words, but they feel your schedule. So let me say that one more time because it's kind of a profound thought when you think of it. It's not mine. I think I got it from Andy Stanley's multiple books. But here's what, he's, here's what we're saying. You can say with your mouth, I love you. Son, daughter, neighbor, mom, dad. And people can hear your words, but they feel your schedule. So there's a connection there between love and time that, that we need to understand. That we need to understand. You felt this tension like if your dad was like a workaholic and he comes home late and he says, I love you, I'm providing for the family, but there's something about it where you hear his words, but you feel his absence. Okay, so that, that's kind of the, the connotation. And then knowing the time, the appointed time, the, the kairos time, the uh, season that we're in, should awaken us versus cause us to sleep. That there's certain responsibilities and obligations that the time awakens us to. So think about your moms. When you were born and it was two in the morning and you started screaming because you were hungry, your mom knew it was the time, Right? Because of your age, and she got up, and she fed you, and all that. Now, if you're 16 years old and 2 in the morning, and you scream for mom to go get you a glass of milk and a little Debbie, mom's probably not going to wake up, or if she does, there's going to be another reaction, right? So moms are really good at knowing the time, you know, as, as you and I matured in our homes and, and that kind of thing. So, so understand, moms, you, you know, two thumbs up for that. So knowing the time should awaken us. And his big point here is this, to get love right, we must get the time. We must understand the season that you and I are in. And if we don't, 
We're, we're, if we don't, we're asleep. We're, if we don't, we're negligent. If we don't, we're guilty of today's deadly sin. And the deadly sin that Paul is implying here is sloth. You have never said, my mom was lazy. If you did, you probably got the other side of her hand, right? You've never said that, right? You've never said, mom was lazy. So sloth is the deadly sin that Paul is implying. And what that means is doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and knowing better. Doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and knowing better. And this is where we got to press because most of us think of sloth as laziness. So let me give, give, you, let me give you some images, okay? So here's like some images. of uh, We have the sloth here, which is sort of like the laziest animal on the planet by our perception. We also have like the, the messy guy, his room's not cleaned up, and so we would say he's lazy and slothful. And then we could like show you this picture uh, of the multitasker, the guy on the computer, he's on the calculator, he's got his cup of coffee, and he, he's writing over doing over, over everything. And, and the, the image here would be this guy is, uh, is lazy, he's slothful, this guy's not. I mean, we would celebrate this, man, I'm so busy, I, I'm so busy, everything is good. And, and then this animal, we're like, that's lazy too. But let's call time out. And let's, let's kind of peel the onion back a little bit so we can see clearly. I can make a case that this animal is doing exactly what his or her creator created him to do. So not slothful, even though we call him a sloth, okay? Now, this looks like sloth, okay? But what if, what if, you know, and, and I think he's even got like the a guitar, so the musician, they, they work late at night. But anyway, what if we, what if I said something else? What if I said, well, actually, this guy, you know, was pulling an all-nighter because his fam- he's got his mom or his dad's in the hospital and has cancer, and he came home just to grab a nap, and he's taking this laundry to the laundromat as soon as he wakes up. Would we say he's lazy? No, because you, you would understand there's something else going on. Now, what about this guy right here? We would say, no, this guy can't be lazy. What if I said this? What if I said this? He works hard at work, but at home he's absent. What if I showed you a picture of his wife or his kids, and he's busy at work, but he's negligent at home? He's a sloth. He's a sloth. Now, we wouldn't say that in culture, and in his mind, he's thinking, I'm working so hard. But he's guilty of sloth, because what is it? Doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and knowing better. So even though we call this a sloth, we're probably like, well, that's kind of what God made this guy to do. Now, this looks like sloth, but we don't know his story. We don't know the front and the back of what put him in bed, right? And this right here, maybe, maybe he is productive, maybe, but we just don't know. So let me give us some symptoms of sloth, okay? Sloth can actually be busyness. And we celebrate busyness in our culture. But if we're busy and we're not busy in the right priorities, we're not doing the right thing at the appointed time, and we're a sloth. Let me tell you what, a, let me give you a big theological statement. And we say it all the time. This is a profound statement. It is a moral statement. It is not just a factual statement. If you've ever said, I just don't have the time, that is a dangerous statement to make because it could indicate you are a sloth. 
It could indicate you were lazy. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. You have enough time to do everything God created, called, and adopted you to do. Period. So when you say, I don't have enough time, here's my question. To do what? To do what? Hold two jobs, three jobs? Okay, maybe that's fair. I don't have enough time to read my Bible? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't have enough time to be involved in church? I don't have enough time to love my son or love my kid? So when you say, I don't have enough time, that is a theological statement. That is a moral statement. It is not morally neutral. And you and I have to press back. Now, in our culture, when someone looks busy and when someone says, I don't have enough time, we're like, oh, they're just so great. They're working so hard, doing so many things. Hogwash, church. That's got, sloth could be right around the corner. So busyness, do not applaud yourself, do not applaud your kids, do not applaud your husband just because they're busy. People say this to me all the time, Matt, you're so busy. That's not necessarily a compliment because you've got to say, what is Matt busy doing? What is Matt busy doing? Another symptom, being distracted, being distracted from the main thing, being distracted by trivialities, being distracted by drama. Being dis- you know what I mean by drama, right? Okay, Be- Amen, right? You can say it. Here we go. Being distracted by entertainment, being distracted by superficiality, being distracted from what the appointed, the kairos time calls for. Here's another one. Boredom or apathy. And you just kind of don't care. I'm just kind of bored. I'm kind of apathetic. I just don't care. In your life, if you ever feel kind of like there's just this inertia, like I can't change, sometimes it manifests as being non-committal. This is like a disease of millennials. Not, millennials don't want to commit to church. They don't want to commit to marriage. They don't want to commit to work. I mean, that's the danger in that generation. Every generation has generational sin. So inertia just stays the same and like doing nothing. And, and we could make a case that the, the male species, the male in the human part of the human, uh, our first sin was sloth. From inertia. Let me read. Let's go to the garden. Look at this. So we talk about Eve. She's the one who ate the fruit. And oh boy, look what that caused. But look. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. What was he doing? He was a sloth. The husband was a spiritual sloth. Because he did nothing to protect his family. You see it? It's hard to see it in yourself. It's easy to see it in someone else. Isn't it? Let me give you another word, because I really want to try to make sure we have no blinders on. Here's another word for this deadly sin. Just avoid. I just avoid doing what I know I ought to do. If you've ever said, man, he was raised better than that. Exactly. He knows better than that. Exactly. But how we spend our time tells us we're avoiding it. And this is why this is the sin underneath Paul's language. Because Paul realizes that being asleep when you should be awake. And, and, and you're, you're avoiding the requirements of love. You're evading the responsibilities of love. 
So sloth could look like this, and you can fill in the blanks based on your context, your situation, your life, but it would look like this. I should be blank, but I'd rather be I, I should be at home, but I'd rather be at work. Have you ever, st- let me, this, is, this killed me when I read this. Have you ever stayed late at work because you didn't want to get home and deal with the kids? God, if I, if I just stay out 30 more minutes, the wife will have them in bed. Yes. Honey, I'm home. Are the kids asleep? And she's like, yeah, just calm down. You're like, yes. Sloth. 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 Like, this rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Sloth, you know? So I'd re- I should be blank, but I'd rather be blank. That is a slothful statement. And, and, and then, here's the deal. We get real creative, and this is why we don't recognize this sin, because we always have an excuse. Honey, it's something that came up at work. I had to stay late. Oh, I just felt like sleeping in. Oh, I'm so busy. So Proverbs calls this out. Proverbs 22, 13. Listen to this. The lazy person claims there's a lion out there. If I go outside, I might be killed. Now, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Because if there's a lion outside, it should say the fearful person. Because if there's a lion, I don't want to be, I'm not lazy, I'm afraid. What is the implication? But the, but the scripture says the lazy person. What it, what it means is the lazy person enlists the mind, the imagination to give it an excuse to not go out where it needs to go. So the, the lazy person finds an excuse to not do what needs to be done in the moment. That's the implication uh, of this proverb. And the Bible, as I was studying for this message, I realized the Bible is full of concern about us being slothful people. Listen, listen to some words of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, and we exhort you. That means like we are motivating, we are fired up, we are warning you, we are coaching you, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Warn those who should be moving forward but are stuck or who are stagnant or who have inertia or who are busy doing the wrong things. Hebrews 4, 11, and this is like a contradiction. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest. Make every effort. And he's talking about the rest and the peace that comes when you place your hope, faith, and trust, confidence in Jesus Christ as your King and your Savior. You give Him the steering wheel of your life that it brings about a rest to your soul. You're not trying to be right with God. You're declared right with God. That's what he's talking about. And he says, look, you got to make every effort. So you can't be this passive person. You can't just be this spectator. And so he says that in Hebrews 4.11. Hebrews 10.24 on why we should come to church. You know, we think of coming to church, and I'm a spectator. We think of coming to church, oh, I get to listen to the preacher and listen to music. Listen biblically why we come to church. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. So when we gather here for an hour a week, or you gather in your small group for a couple of hours uh, every week or, or a couple times a month, the goal of that is like a cowboy spurring on a horse to move forward in a common direction. We spur one another on, so we go out here and we get love right. We go out here and we show our good deeds to our community, to people who are hurting, to people who need hope. So we come in here to get fired up to go out there and live sent for King Jesus. We don't come in here like, ooh, I did church, now I'll go live slothfully for the other 167 hours and won't do what needs to be done because what King Jesus is saying to us, church, is what needs to be done when we ready break is you need to show your love and put your good deeds out to work in your community, in your city, and in this world. Wake up, slothful people, he said. 
And then the last verse uh, that I found, and there were more uh, on this subject of keeping the church alive and keeping the church awake, is this, Romans 12, 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Kind of literally, that would say, stay at the boiling point spiritually. Stay on fire for the right things. Stay on fire for the things that count, the things that matter in this kairos, in this time that you and I live in. So when you think about it, here's the cool thing. When you think about it, the opposite of sloth, the opposite of, of, of laziness, the opposite of sloth is actually zeal, joy, and passion but not zeal, joy, and passion in some chemically induced fashion, not zeal, joy, and passion in some entertainment-induced passion, but zeal, joy, and passion in the things of the kingdom, in the things that matter, in the things of God, because it's the time. What time is it? It's the time of the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's the time of the kingdom of God expanding and growing. It's the time of salvation. So don't be asleep in those things. So Paul's logical conversation with the church at Rome continues in uh, verse 11. He says, besides this, we're going to repeat, do this because of love. Since you know the time, this season that we're in, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. Because now our salvation, our redemption, the coming of the kingdom of Jesus, all of that language and all of that figurative speech that's in the Bible applies, is nearer than when we first believed. And he gives another metaphor to explain this. And he says, the night is nearly over. And you know when the night's over, think about time. It's time for things to start happening. It's time to get ready for school, to get ready for work, to wake up, to get your clothes, to shave, to shower, to brush your teeth. And so he's using that thing so people understand, okay, there's a time to sleep and there's a time to wake up and get moving. And so he says, the day is near. In other words, something has happened. There's a new reality that has dawned. There's a new time that we're entering into, a new era that we're entering into, and that time calls for action. It does not call for us to be slothful because there's a new reality going on. So don't be asleep. So if you bracket this, because Christ has appeared, because Christ has been crucified and resurrected, because there's a new kingdom dawning and coming forth in the world, we should be fired up, zealous, passionate, excited about that. It's called timeout. That's a challenge for us, in particular, in the country in which we live. I'm going to ask a question, read a quote, and we'll explain. Is there anything in real life, life, Kairos time, life under the authority of Jesus, life in the kingdom of Jesus, that I am passionate or zealous about? Now, when I I, I kind of thought that question up, I started thinking, you know, we get excited about a lot of things. We get excited about football season. We get excited about that it's springtime. We get excited that, hey, my team is doing this, or this movie's coming out. It's summer's time of the blockbuster, or this new CD was released, or this new album is coming out. We get excited about a lot of entertainment-type things. And I thought, and then a lot of us live with this TGIF mentality, like, man, I just got to go to work, got to do this, got to do that, and then it's the weekend, baby. And I'm like, "Are, are we in America asleep? 
and we only get excited about things that do not really matter in the appointed time of Jesus. And then we stumbled upon this quote that I'll read for you. There is in America today deep boredom and apathy. We look like we're having a great time as we go from one entertainment event and program and mall and movie to another, but it is all artificial. We are not excited with real life. We are desperately waiting for the weekend when we can play because real life is just not connected with any great cause that inspires in us exploits of courage or daring or risk or adventure or strategy or dreaming or deep camaraderie. We wonder why our relationships are so feeble and thin and fragile. And deep down, we know that part of the reason is that relationships go deep when arms are linked in a great cause that you are ready to lay down your lives for. Deep relationships are not cultivated by watching television or going to movies. So I'll ask you, is there anything in real life under the authority of King Jesus and His kingdom and His Word by His Spirit that you wake up every day and said, yes, hallelujah, I'm alive. And I'm a part of something big and eternal and significant. If not, you're a sloth and you need to wake up. Paul continues. So let us, in light of what we just talked about, in light of the reality of Jesus... Let us discard the deeds of darkness. So the stuff you did when it's night or the stuff that might have seemed appropriate without Jesus in the picture, without the kingdom coming, let's get rid of that and put on the armor of light. And he, he takes us to another analogy or another metaphor. And it's the metaphor, go back please. And it's the metaphor of clothing. It's the metaphor of what you wear. And think about it. You wear things, think of Paul's logical, you wear things based on the time. You sleep in something different than you go to work in, right? You, you, you go to work and you, wear, you, have, you probably have some kind of dress code that, of where you work, whatever that is, a uniform or a button down or, or whatever the case may be. So wearing something has to do with time. So Paul says, in light of Christ's coming, we're going to discard the deeds of darkness and put on armor as the armor of light, which again would be a metaphor to Jesus. And so he says, now let us walk, which is another way of saying let us live with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling or jealousy. And he says, look, there's, there's a couple of areas here where this shows up. A lot of us, the way we use our bodies and the way we respond to our bodies is like we're asleep. That we live for the pleasure that we can get physically. And the other way is in relationships. We have quarreling and jealousy. And then in our relationships, we get slothful and we're not attentive to what's going on. So he kind of gives us two broad handlebars. And the point he's trying to make is this, or his goal in this teaching is this. Appointed time, the time of the kingdom, the time your salvation is near, was the phrase he used, should affect clock time. So knowing that Jesus is, a res is resurrected, that Jesus is inaugurating a kingdom, should affect how you spend your time. Sa same parallel, all right, as we used earlier with like a student, okay? So a student, hey, now is the time to get your education. So what you do at 6 o'clock on a school night ought to be influenced by the appointed time, the season of your education. If you're single, 
Okay, single people do something different with clock time than married people do with clock time, right? Now you're married, so you're in a time, appointed time, a season of marriage. How you spend clock time should show up in your marriage because remember, he or she may hear your words, I love you, but they feel your what? Schedule. So the fact that Jesus is here, Jesus is risen, Jesus' spirit is operating through the church in the world, that's the appointed time we're in, should show up in our clock time. If not, we could be asleep at the wheel. All right, so how do we move forward with that? How, how do we move past that? A couple of thoughts to share. Number one is this. We got to realize that time is a battlefield. When he says that thing, put on the armor of light, it's appointed time. Time is a battlefield, so we have to be vigilant. And this is why this is so crazy, because your schedule will get out of control. You will not evaluate. I will not evaluate how I'm spending my clock time. And the next thing you know, like six months down the road, you're like, what happened? Why has my marriage drifted apart? What happened? Why has my, you know, my physicality or my physical health drifted? Why, why is what is going on? Because negligence doesn't show up in an instant, does it? It's cumulative. And so you can miss one workout or miss one date night or miss one time with your kids that you thought and you're like, oh, it's no big deal. And then you do it twice. Oh, it's no big deal. And you do it next time. It's no big deal. And the next thing you know, your son or daughter's 18 and you're out of time. The next thing you know, your wife's heart is hardened and she's done. So you got to pay attention to time. It's a battlefield. And Satan would love for us to be asleep in our marriages, asleep in our church chairs, asleep in the pew, asleep with our kids because he knows he can just wait us out because sooner or later time will catch up and reveal how we've been spending it. So you and I have to realize something. Time is not just a moment. It's a path. It's a path. How we spend our time shows up in our relationships. How we spend our time takes us somewhere. And you can ask yourself this question. If I keep doing X the same way I've been doing X, where will I be in six months? Simple. I can you tell me how you're spending time in your marriage. I can tell you with some degree of accuracy where your marriage will be six to 12 months from now. You tell me how you spend your time with church, the Word of God, worship. I can tell you. It's, it's easy. Just the way I could say, hey, if you eat Little Debbie's every meal for three weeks, I'll tell you what you'll look like or what's going to happen. I mean, I don't even have a medical degree, and I could be pretty accurate, and you could too. And yet what we don't pay attention, do we? We say, oh, I'm too busy. That is not a morally neutral statement. You can be too busy. And be a sloth, asleep at the wheel. And the people around you that are in relationships with you, your church members, your spouse, what do they feel? Your schedule. But there's a beautiful thing. We won't receive it as a beautiful thing, but I'm convinced God does it. And it's a grace of God. And I'll call it a reality check. Reality check, where the way you're spending your time, and then boom, she blows up at you. And you're like, why are you so mad? You? It could be a reality check. It could be a wake-up. It could be like an alarm going off. You know, you've been neglecting your kids and neglecting your kids, and the teacher calls. 
hey, I'm concerned about your son. What? What's going on? My son's fine. Don't ignore it. Could be a reality check. Think, think about in America. 9-11 happened on a Tuesday. What did we do? We canceled every sporting event for the next five to seven days. Closed the stock market. President called everybody to pray. Church attendance for one week went up. Why? We got a reality check. There's evil in the world. There's good. There's bad. And suddenly it didn't seem right to sit at a football game and have more passion about whether we get a pigskin across an artificial line when 3,000 Americans died. So not that there's anything wrong with football, not that there's anything wrong with going to a movie, but if those are the dominant realities, quote-unquote, if they're really superficial, those don't matter in, in the kingdom kind of deal, then we have to be paying attention to what counts. And when God sends you a reality check, it may feel like a punch in the stomach to your marriage, to your job, in your family, in your spiritual walk. Receive it. God could be saying, wake up. And let me just say this. Do you know different people wake up different ways? Some people wake up with just a snap of the finger. Okay? Some people shake them. Your God, my God, knows how to wake you up. But if you hit the snooze button, time will tell. Number two, where am I the sleepiest? That needs to marinate. We've been talking a lot. Where are you the sleepiest? And you just need to confess it. God can handle it. He already knows it. You may need to say as you walk out of here, Mom, I'm sorry. Dad, I'm sorry. A lot of men come to church on Mother's Day that never come to church other than Mother's Day and Easter. You're a sloth. Would you walk out of here and make a commitment? Honey, I will help you get the kids to church. And I will set an example. I will not be like Adam anymore. Where are you the sleepiest? Confess. It's okay. Second question. What does it look like for me to wake up? you got to change something. And you know what you have to change? How you spend your time. How you spend your time. And then remember... The goal of all this is love. And let me just tell you something. To do love differently, we must do time differently. Simple. To do love differently, you have to do time differently. Hey, I need, we need more love in my family. We need love, more love in my marriage. You have to do time differently. That's it. You have to. Now, in all of this, in all of this, and this is kind of the closing statement that Paul's going to make in these eight or nine verses that we've been talking about. In all of this, we look to Jesus Christ as the one who spent time perfectly and correctly. And, and I want you to look at Jesus for just a moment. Take your eyes off your schedule. Take your eyes off maybe the conviction you're feeling right now and, and the evaluation we've all been doing. You know, I've been sitting on this message for two and a half weeks. Good to get off my chest. So right now, let's look at Christ, okay? And this is what Paul invites us to do. Romans 13, 14, he says, look, put on, talking about clothes again, because it's the time to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans 
because it's not time anymore, to gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh is the part of you that wants to stay asleep that needs to wake up. So don't, don't start thinking about that. It is now the time to put on Jesus. And I want to give you a great example because you, if you look at Christ and the Holy Spirit's working and you're not resisting the Holy Spirit, this is so powerful, so beautiful, and will end in a spirit of worship and will marvel and stand in awe of King Jesus because of how he spent time on our behalf. We're going to go to the last night before Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to listen to this in light of what we've been talking about. All right, Mark chapter 14. Jesus went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour... Now, what hour was it? Now, that's not clock time. It's, the, it's what God the Father had been working on since Genesis 3, when Adam was slothful and Eve was lustful for the fruit. Two deadly sins. It's what God the Father had been working on with, through the Jewish people through Abraham and Moses and David and the exile and the Romans and the birth of a little child in a manger. The hour had come that it might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. This cup is a reference to the wrath of God, the anger of God directed at our sin, the anger of God of us missing the time was all going to go on God the Son, all going to go on Jesus. And Jesus says, take this, time, this cup away from me in this time. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus got up and was betrayed, and was arrested, and was tried unjustly, was beaten mercilessly, was crucified like a criminal, died six hours later, was put into the ground, resurrected on the third day, and stands alive to say, I loved you that much. I love you. I want you to be a part of my family. Now, Paul is going to explain theologically what happened here historically. Romans 5. God's love, okay, we've been talking about God's love all, all, all time together. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the Holy Spirit takes something of God's love and makes it real, makes it come alive, makes our heart overflow, makes us go from feeling rejected to accepted, makes us go from feeling condemned to justified and approved. That's an act of the Holy Spirit. So what is God's love? For while we were still helpless at the right time, there it is, the hour, the chronos, the kairos, excuse me, the, the appointed season at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a good person or a just person, though for a good person someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love. Here it is, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus went through from Gethsemane to Calvary to an empty tomb, shows us that factually, historically, and we receive it affectionately as the love of God, and we're seized by it, and we say, Jesus, I want to be a part of your kingdom. Jesus, my time has come to be adopted into your family and to live for you and to live as a citizen, not of this earth, but a citizen of heaven. And it will show up 
in how I spend my time, in how I love my neighbor. I pray you would see the love of God for you. It would grip you, seize you, you'd never get over it, and you'd do love differently because you'll do time differently because you're under the authority and love of Jesus Christ. Happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. God, for many of us, maybe the first glimpse of your love came through the love of our moms, and so we praise you for moms. They're a channel. They're a way maybe to see and perceive your love for us. But God, even the love we've gotten from our moms pales in comparison to the love that you want to put into our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, when you make what Jesus did in Gethsemane to Calvary to the empty tomb come alive and seize us and adopt us and captivate us and conquer us and guide us and control us and compel us to be citizens of your family, of your kingdom, to be sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, if anybody here needs to say yes to you for the first time, would you give them that grace and may they say yes in faith. Holy Spirit, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? God, if that conviction is real, we need your help because we need to walk out of here today and do time differently in our homes, in our lives, in our careers because it's the time of King Jesus and his kingdom. God, may we marvel at you. May we stand in awe of you, who you are, how you spent your time, how you loved us. And we thank you for that love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray.